This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast Business. Is it possible to get business internet you can really rely on? It is with 99.9% network reliability from Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Hey there, Shortwavers. Regina Barber here, and I'm here with NPR health policy correspondent Selena Simmons-Duffin. Hey, Selena. Hi, Regina. So, Selena, it's good I have you on today because we're going to talk about something that's like no big deal, right? Yeah, it's a very low-key topic, how life begins. (laughs) Okay, but no, really, we're going to dig into the science of the first week of pregnancy. Wow. And it's going to get a lot more detailed than anything you heard from your parents, probably, or what you heard in sex ed. Selena, I'm going to be honest here. As a grown woman, I'm going into this conversation knowing almost nothing. Really? Weren't you pregnant, though? I mean, I, I was. It all worked out. I have a wonderful daughter, but I don't totally understand the biology of the whole process. Yeah. OK, I get that. I also have been pregnant twice. I have two kids. I thought I knew this stuff. But, you know, when I was reporting on this, I learned a whole lot of stuff I had no idea about. So seriously, though, you actually do report a lot on reproduction and on abortion restrictions, right? Right, right. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last June, I started working on projects that were looking at laws in some states that define personhood as beginning at fertilization. So I was looking for a good resource to link to that explained what happens after fertilization until a pregnancy really kicks off. And I just couldn't find anything. So I worked with a team of colleagues at NPR, including illustrator L.A. Johnson, and we went way into the details at the cellular level for how all of this happens. We made an illustrated guide, and it's at NPR.org, and I'm going to tell you about what we learned. Today on the show, how a pregnancy begins in that very first week, from the minute an egg bursts out of an ovary. You're listening to Shortwave, the science podcast from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Indeed. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Get a $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com slash shortwave. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so where do you want to start? Okay, I want to start by getting oriented in the body, all right? So I think you can probably approximate where the uterus is. Right? If you make a fist and you put it right under your belly button. Yes? Are you with me? I do have a uterus. Yes. Yes. Okay, now picture two tubes, kind of like antennas, Mm -hmm. coming out from that fist-sized uterus on either side. Those are the fallopian tubes, or they're sometimes called uterine tubes. 
And at the outside end of each of these tubes are ovaries. They're about the size and shape of a large grape. And the ovaries contain lots of eggs. A fun fact is you're born with all the eggs you'll ever have, which is about one to two million. Do you know any facts about eggs, Regina? Well, I knew that we were actually born with all of those eggs, and I also know that they're single cells. That is right. They're one of the largest human cells, about the size of a grain of salt, so you can see them with your naked eye. So before pregnancy happens, basically the ovaries and the uterus need to get all set up. And in the ovaries, what that means is ovulation. I'm sure you're already familiar with some of this. Basically, every month, imagine a single egg maturing in a little fluid sac in the ovary called a follicle. And in ovulation, that fluid sac bursts, releasing the egg. Then it gets scooped up into the uterine tube where it hangs out, waiting to possibly get fertilized. The uterus itself has to get ready too, right? Yes. So for weeks, rising levels of the hormone estrogen have made the lining of the uterus get thicker and thicker. So it's kind of cushiony. Dr. Joe Muter is a research fellow at the University of Warwick in England, and she explained to me the scale of the endometrium's growth every month. It starts off about two millimeters thick and it grows to about 14, 15. It's one of the fastest growing tissues in the body. It's faster than some cancers. If you, like me, aren't great with millimeters, picture the thickness of a nickel and then it growing to the thickness of a deck of cards every month. Wow. Okay, let's all appreciate the wonders of the endometrium. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so ovulation has happened. The egg is in its place. The uterus is all cushy. Let me guess, this is where sex and possibly sperm come in? Correct. Ding, ding, ding. So this is <laughs> this is not just a few sperm either. Every ejaculation contains tens of millions of sperm, but most don't get very far. They either flow back out of the vagina or they get attacked by immune cells. A teensy-tiny portion of the sperm make it through the cervix, which is the lower entrance to the uterus, and then on through the uterus and into the uterine tube to the site of fertilization where the egg is. And even if the egg isn't there yet, sperm can hang around in this spot for a few days and wait for an egg. Yeah, I've heard that. And I also know from a previous shortwave episode that sperm actually need some help to get where they need to go, right? Yes. So I talked about this with Dr. David Miller. He is a professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, who studies sperm. Sperm don't make the journey just by their own swimming. So even though sperm have those little tails that move in a corkscrewy type motion, they don't have enough energy or directional ability to travel on their own. And it is a journey. Crossing the uterus is a huge distance. There's all sorts of crevices. In terms of scale, you can imagine a person trying to get across a Grand Canyon. Wow. Okay. So if they can't really race all that way and they have to get across this Grand Canyon, what what do they do? How do they get there? There is a bit of mystery about that, but Miller says one of the main ways that sperm get to the site of fertilization is by hitching a ride. They're being carried by the fluid flow within the female tract. So they're sort of like cells going down a, a water ride at a water park or something like that. They're, they're actually being carried. He says sperm move within that fluid carrying them and they can use their own motility to like get around barriers. And scientists also think that things like body heat and chemical signals and those beating cilia and muscular contractions, possibly from sex, all play a role in how quickly sperm get to the uterine tube. So you find some sperm in the fallopian tube within an hour, 
after intercourse. Wow, that's wild. And obviously they can't swim that fast. And how does the sperm actually connect with the egg then? It releases enzymes that help break down these layers. So once the first sperm gets through that layer of helper cells and then the zona pellucida and then finally the membrane of the egg itself, the egg releases enzymes that quickly harden the zona so no other sperm can get in. It can only be one. Okay, so the sperm's DNA joins up with the DNA from the egg. Yes, exactly. So through the process of fertilization, the 23 unpaired chromosomes from the egg and the 23 unpaired chromosomes from the sperm fuse together to create a new set of 23 pairs of chromosomes, which is the genetic blueprint unique to that fertilized egg. So now it becomes what's called a zygote. It's still one cell, but it's no longer just an egg. And the genes that control or influence hundreds of characteristics, including sex and hair color and eye color are all determined instantly. Okay, but it doesn't stay one cell for long, right? Oh no, it very quickly begins to divide and travel through the uterine tube towards the uterus. So one cell becomes two, then four, then eight, then 16. And the stage around eight to 32 cells kind of looks like a berry. So that bundle is called a morula, which is Latin for mulberry. This is Dr. Ripla Aurora. She is a professor at Michigan State University. Because the fallopian tube cavity is rather narrow, even though the embryo is dividing, it's not growing in size. So it stays roughly the same size as the egg. Which, remember, is very, very small. This is the size of a grain of salt. So the hardened zona that we talked about that happened after the sperm actually made contact, that keeps all the dividing cells contained. So when does the bundle of cells become an embryo? It takes some time. So five days after fertilization, it's called a blastocyst. And it's not just this little mulberry anymore. It starts to have these distinct structures. So some of the cells will become an embryo and some of them will become the placenta. And the blastocyst has now traveled all the way down the tube to reach a junction and then enter the uterus. For the embryo to now make contact with the uterine lining and for the embryo to start growing beyond that size of the egg, it has to lose that membrane, the zona. So the embryo enters the uterus, moves around, finds a place to attach, loses the zona. And there's a pretty tight timeline for this. The blastocyst only has about four days to implant. And this is another part of the process I thought I understood but definitely did not. How so? Well, I always thought implantation was kind of passive, like a tennis ball landing on a Velcro paddle. Remember that game? I I do. I do. So many angry cousins. (laughs) Okay, well, Joe Muter from the University of Warwick told me that that is a common belief, but it's totally wrong. Everyone thinks that it's just kind of the embryo sticks and that's it. It's not. The the, the womb, like, physically grabs it and pulls it in. What? Yeah. She explained (laughs) to me that the cells from the endometrium kind of travel out towards the blastocyst, assess whether it's likely to be viable, and if it is, encapsulate it and pull it in. So it's not passive. It's totally active. Wow. That's so great. Yeah. So here is how scientists currently understand this process. We don't know, but we think that if it's a good quality embryo, that's when you get this active encapsulation. If it's a bad quality embryo, the womb is able to sense that and say, no, you're not going to implant, not going to let you. And then it wouldn't implant and you'd have your period and you're not pregnant. So studies estimate that about 40% of the time, the blastocyst doesn't implant and it's shed during menstruation. So that's called early pregnancy loss or a chemical pregnancy. That seems like a high number. 
You know, this was surprising to me, too. I kind of thought that if an egg was fertilized, pregnancy was inevitable. But there is a lot that has to happen for pregnancy to really begin. Like, if you took a pregnancy test at this point, it would not confirm you're pregnant yet? Right, exactly. Not for at least another week. Wow. Okay. What about what happens if the embryo does pass the viability test? So the womb is like, yes, let's do this. What happens next? Okay, so... After those cells float out from the endometrium, assess it, say it's worthwhile, and then pull it in, it actually burrows down through a layer or two of the endometrium and takes up residence in this deeper part. And once implantation happens over in the uterus, the placenta in the uterus starts to release this pregnancy hormone. And that is a signal to the ovary to begin releasing progesterone. So all of these hormones cue the body to stop ovulation, stop menstruation, and that is the beginning of this cascade of hormonal and structural changes to a pregnant person's body as pregnancy progresses, which you and I both know well. Oh, yeah. We've been there. (laughs) Which brings us back to the idea we started with in this conversation. Implantation is medically considered the start of pregnancy. Yeah, that's true, even though there is still no way to know that this has happened because a pregnancy test won't turn positive at this point either. So, you know, there are also many points, as we've mentioned, so many points along the way where the embryo could be rejected or stop growing or just not turn into a real formal pregnancy. And no one, doctors, prospective patients, no one has any idea any of this is happening inside until at the earliest a week after implantation. And that's because it takes a while before there's enough of that pregnancy hormone in the urine to turn a pregnancy test positive. So even though this is such an important moment, it's really hard to define in law that you can do this before implantation and not this after implantation or draw some kind of line in the sand because it's not possible to mark it happening in real time in somebody's body. There's so much detail here, and there's still so many parts of this process that are key to something as foundational as, like, how and when life begins, and it's still not understood. Yeah, so that's related to this idea that you can't know that moment when implantation happens. There's no easy way with today's technology to see inside a human body while this is all happening and get insights into any of these mysteries. And it's really hard to study pregnant women at all because of ethical issues. So again, that really presents a challenge for laws that are trying to regulate pregnancy. And especially as science and politics continue to clash over exactly when life does begin. But I do think that understanding the process of early pregnancy as fully as possible is more important than ever. Thank you so much, Selena, for bringing us this story. Thanks for having me, Regina. We'll link to Selena and LA's illustrated guide on early pregnancy in our episode notes. The Explainer was edited by two dear former colleagues. Deb Franklin edited the writing and Meredith Rizzo edited the art. Will Chase made sure the facts were good. This episode was edited by our managing producer, Rebecca Ramirez, produced by Carly and Willa Rubin, no relation, and Burley McCoy. The audio engineer for this episode was Maggie Luthar. Bet Zonovan is our senior director, and Anya Grenman is our senior vice president of programming. I'm Regina Barber. Thanks for listening to Shortwave from NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater. 
committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events. With online ordering and 24-7 live support, learn more at easycater.com. This message comes from Jackson. Seek clarity in retirement planning at jackson.com. Jackson is short for Jackson Financial, Inc., Jackson National Life Insurance Company, Lansing, Michigan, and Jackson National Life Insurance Company of New York. Purchase New York. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.